0: Hello, everyone! Thank you for tuning in. Welcome to the Ubuntu Podcast.
1: Welcome back to another exciting Ubuntu Podcast. Um, if you're hearing my voice and you're like, "Who the heck is that?" Um, this is Maryam Salim, not your normal co-host but excited to be here today with all of you and our last conversation was on the history of international development the politics policies that go into it as well as our own and our own personal experiences um but without further ado let's have our fellow co-hosts introduce themselves
0: hey y'all this is dow Uh, welcome back to part two
2: what's up everybody it's david good to be with you all good to see you and hear you once again miriam
3: (laughs) Hey everyone, this is Hano, excited to be here again. So something very important to talk about and address is the very distorted vision of the charity industry around our communities and Africans. Culture has played a big role in how the everyday person becomes entangled in this large lucrative system with human suffering and misfortune at the center. So in starting with something simple, what's a typical stereotype that the aid in- industry perpetuates about Africans that must stop? And why do you guys think it's wrong?
1: So coming from a visual standpoint, if I can be the first to tackle this question, um, being a photographer and the power of media, this reminds me of a photo that became really popular um, years ago during the famine in Sudan. And that was the photo of a boy Um, visibly starving and there's a vulture like walking towards him and basically you know alluding that this child will die Uh, and the discussions that in my journalism classes that I would hear uh, from students and professors was that okay people want this photographer to intervene Um, and in reality the photographer didn't because there's this whole aspect of journalism that you're just in general a fly on the wall you're an observer you're recording history not participating in it. Uh, and so the child did die and and was you know subsequently what happened with the vulture next. Um, but the the photographer got a lot of hate for it and committed suicide at thirty three um, because the weight of you know the, the that moral decision um, took took a lot from from the photographer, but also the amount of things that I mean took a lot out of that kid too, right? about whether you should intervene or not. Uh, but one thing that journalists, especially old-fashioned journalists, hold on to is well, you know, sure that was a very morally compromising position to be in. but as a journalist, that was the right decision because what happened was after that photo was released, you know, millions of people donated to millions of dollars to to the end of the famine. Uh, and so it just kind of you know brings in the question like, is it as black and white, right? Like, couldn't he have intervened after taking that photo? Um, or, you know, is there is there another way of being able to, like, say... Can we get people to donate without having to exploit the conditions that they're in uh, or that the people that need the donations are in? Uh, And I don't think we were able to find even till now that sweet spot, because right now we're in a COVID-19 world where the entire world is affected uh, and developing nations are also feeling the brunt of this. And yet we haven't really seen any photos that depicted patients um, as ill or in need of like copious amounts of donations um, from their suffering, right? Like we know people are suffering and people are donating from that knowledge, but we haven't had to have to see that, right? We didn't, we don't see the amount of caskets or hospital beds um, or or, or patients coughing their lungs out and whatnot. Um, And so I'm I'm wondering why is it that, you know, for for something that affects developed nations like the United States um, or Europe, why is it that they are able to receive donations for things that don't require human suffering or visual depictions of human suffering, whereas for Africa, uh, we have to see kind of like a stereotypical trope of a child starving or at their last, you know, breath uh, for people to feel some sort of empathetic response to, to donate.
0: That's a great point, Miriam. Uh, and for me, it's just like I think I kind of always just kind of go back to my own experience uh, growing up in the refugee camp. at and. You know, you would see journalists coming from all over the world, right? And it's just, I think the only way to show the plight to them from their perspective was to show the plight of the refugees that they were in. You know, uh, taking the pictures of you know, you know, the newly arrival refugees from you know, from Sudan, Somalia, you know, Burundi, for say examples. Ah, uh, but at that point in time, it's just like the ref- the, the journalists knew that these were newly arrival refugees who were literally just displaced off their homeland uh and so why do their pictures in a way have to be taken to show that they are suffering when you can see in reality that they are suffering and it's just it's just like where did that idea come from right do do you have to see the suffering of the refugee or for an example a black person or a brown person to feel empathetic toward them. And so for me, it's just like, it's something I always wonder about because when I was a child, I was always excited to take pictures, you know? Who wasn't? I never saw a camera before. It was something new or, you know, I was like, wait, it could capture my picture? Cool, I definitely want my picture to be taken, but I was a kid. But now seeing it from a different perspective as an adult, uh, especially at AU studying, you know, development international relations so you kind of see you know the the negative aspect of it you know uh the the negative side of it where it's it, it just seemed that you know the picture of the starving African child has to be constantly shown to remind people of the suffering that people are going through in the proliferate countries instead of just people just knowing hey there these are refugees and this is where they come from there there is no need to show their pictures of their suffering for people to feel empathetic or to have to have that feeling, hey, maybe I can do something to give. I think it's just like a conversation that happened a couple of years back. You know, the drowning Syrian child, right? Remember that their their family completely drowned when they were going to Europe on their way because the sh- the little boat that they were on completely capsized in the Mediterranean. And so, why do why do why does the West have to see the suffering of Black and Brown people in images in the most I would say, in a way, it's just in 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 their most vulnerable way, a human being could possibly be either dead or literally starving on their pathway toward death.
1: No, that's a great point, Dal. And I think a lot, like you brought up the the importance of consent, right? So that family of the Syrian child, you know, they t- repeatedly told the news. Not to post this photo of their child because it's it's traumatic, right? Sure, maybe millions of people have donated to refugee relief efforts, and yeah, if you cared about that family and what they're going through, you would understand how horrific it is to see your child's face plastered everywhere after they're after they're gone, right? And gone from the most horrible way. Uh, and I think this brings like this reminds me of when I was in Turkey. I did a visual like research project that where I was photo or I was interviewing people, but then instead of photo their faces like humans of New York, um, I would, you know, take pictures of the places that they told me reminded them of home um, or gave them hope for home in Syria. And so I went to Fatih, which is one of the, you know, more populated areas where there's a lot of Arab rep- um, refugees, but also just Arabs in general. And I saw a protest with Syrians there and they had the new flag. So I knew that this was like part of the diaspora that is protesting the regime in Syria uh, and have felt the brunt of the war. And so I like got off my my taxi and I went over the protest. Uh, And at first I wasn't taking photos. I like took photos generally of like the space, but not, I tried not to show people's faces because again, I don't know what people are facing, but I also didn't want to get yelled at and be accused of something that I wasn't doing. And so, but then all of a sudden like the young adult men in the crowd saw me with my camera and they like begged me to take their photos. They were like holding signs and they're like taking a photo here and then one of the other boys brought his friends over uh and like I was kind of like pushed around from friend groups and like we were taking photos at different angles and there were statues in the park so they were they went from one side of the statue to the other side and I was like okay this is beginning to feel less like a protest and more like a fashion shoot um and then I saw this young um boy with his grandfather and he was holding a sign that said that um, Bashar was a a criminal. And I thought like this would have been a perfect photo to take, but I decided not to in that moment because I didn't want it to be exploitive that here I am taking a photo of this young boy uh, and his grandfather. So as I was leaving the protest after photographing the young adult men, um, all of a sudden the grandfather called me over and asked me to take a photo with him. And his grandson, and you know that that that's a moment of consent right there, right? Like that that's so important. That photo means a lot more to me, knowing that I was asked to take it, right? And there's power in people feeling that they'll they're gonna be seen, and they're gonna be visible. Obviously, I don't look Turkish, um, and yes, I'm Muslim, and they they saw that, but I mean, they didn't know if I was a part of a news organization. I, I'm not Syrian, so they didn't think I was like a spy for the regime. But just them knowing that I'm like, I see them and that there is someone that is outside of the conflict that they are facing who also recognizes them and who also sees them and is taking interest in what's going to them. That That's that's powerful, um, but it's powerful when there's consent. And I think that a lot of journalists and, and photographers and even NGOs that are trying to raise awareness for the issues that are working with overlook how important consent is when it comes to showing the work that they're doing.
2: So good, so good. But I do just want to give another example that really legitimizes what you all are saying. Even in that very, it is a very tricky, uh, it's a very tricky place to be in. And uh, especially the work I do with my NGO of Building Hope, it's like we work with young people. Like that's the center of the program and our donor base is in the US. And so for people who are far removed photos is like an easy way to really make that connection but one of the things I've learned over the years and understanding the how that can be problematic is like there are other ways for folks to be able to elicit understanding and share dignity without um taking people's photos without their consent and i've actually run into some issues where folks who i love who i support who i respect and i know who actually genuinely care about the well-being of the students i work with have made suggestions that the way that we photograph them and the way that we portray them to our to our U.S. donor base is um, ineffective because they look too polished. They look too happy. They look too normal. Like, that's actually what I've been told. Like, the kids look so normal. They look well taken care of. Like, you need to show them you know emaciated and with tattered clothes and like in front of their hut homes and like just very crazy things that i've heard but to folks it wasn't crazy it was like this is the narrative this is what the industry is about and i think without them even knowing that they were really they were really explaining the mechanisms of aid and of charity as controlled by us and other western forces that are that dehumanize us and so um i really appreciate you bringing that up from your perspective as a photographer and we've also had conversations about this in times past because i was like miriam i do not want to take photos of anybody but it's my responsibility how do i get consent and helping me walk through how do i get informed consent from folks uh, especially children so just an opportunity to online on air (laughs) say thank you for that because it's been it's helped my entire organization
0: How is development seen from the from an African perspective? Should it be developed in a Western way or in a more local centric point of view?
2: Yeah, I can, uh, I can start. Thank you for posing that question. I think the conversation we had on our last episode was really incredible. I really was able to learn so much about each of you all and, um, how your personal experiences are kind of weaving into these really big takeaways and real big critiques and real big, hopefully as we can explore more with this episode, opportunities that are taking place in the development sphere and in the development realm, uh, as it relates to our communities and our diaspora concerning Africa. And, um, Um, I definitely believe that what it means to, I I guess, how we want to talk about approaching Africa and development, I think there's not a one size fits all kind of answer. Uh, I think you know, in Africa, we have 54 countries and all with very unique lineages and um, resources and histories, um, ways of being cultures, existences. And um, I think one of the failings of the system of development that we see proliferated in contemporary is this um, idea that one approach that that the u.s approach or the western approach are you know is correct and is like unilaterally applied and i think we see so many instances of that like just being really like resulting in failure resulting in a waste of resources resulting in like a loss of agency of people who are being served and um i think the conversation just too, too it's too much centered on like Western folks and Western forces and people who are not actually a part of the community. I think that development in many places has to take place locally. It has to take place in what makes most sense and what's most salient for the people who are directly engaged. And if it doesn't have that kind of um, I I don't think if it has that kind of approach, it's not going to work or it's not going to work long term. And I think people actually have to decide what does development look like for me? What does it look like for my community? What does it look for my family? Because we're not rather so that it's not like we're just trying to emulate what other people define as success, what other people define as development, because that's when you start to see real problems. But I'm curious if anyone else thinks that way or has different like maybe examples or what other folks have to say.
1: I think personally, like for me and my family, uh, I remember going to some NGO sites in, or wanting to visit some NGO sites in Ethiopia. And a lot of these NGOs I had previous relationships with from uh, basically they were the partner sites of the organizations that I worked with in the United States. Um, and oh, I was in Ethiopia for a more family like for family reasons, uh, I still wanted to take the time to kind of see the work in action because I mean, I would read about it, but it's different seeing it. And I just remember not being able to get a hold of the partner orgs once I was there. Um, and then I my cousin who... I mean, lives in Ethiopia, said that, you know, a lot of these organizations are just a sign over a building uh, and that they don't actually see anything from them. And I believe that that's a view that is shared by many, particularly because, I mean, there's a specific niche community that I feel like international development organizations cater their work to, right? That isn't the majority um, of the societies that are surrounding that community. Uh, And so it's, it's kind of like the debates that we hear, whether it's like with, you know, social programs helping lower incomes or extremely impoverished classes. um, But yet other classes are struggling as well, too. And other classes might be the majority. Um, And so not seeing those those benefits or not seeing those programming makes a particular like it's a particular invasion that I feel like populations that aren't being catered to feel Uh, and also like there's it has residual effects as well Um, so for instance in Turkey a lot of the programs that I saw and I think this is I mean this is applicable everywhere is that uh, you'll have a lot of programs for women and children because women and children are the most vulnerable in any extreme circumstance Um, and yet that left internal a vulnerability for young men where you would have these displaced populations and the women and girls have programs to go to whereas the young men who are then you know asked to find work or find money for their families are pushed into the informal economy and are then exploited by uh, different businesses um, or even make it themselves into illegal businesses as well and that kind of fit shapes you know that shapes the community and that impacts the family uh, and so I think NGOs I'm not I'm not you know entirely, hating on the whole NGO system. But I think what happens when we focus a lot of our energies just into charitable acts is that it prevents or it it absolves governments from responsibility too, right? Um, and it's fascinating how, you know, in the United States, especially if you're leaning more liberal, you have a little bit more uh, understanding of why you may feel upset towards wanting to privatize institutions or charterize education, and yet we don't have that same effect on, or that same emotional response when it comes to privatizing or charterizing um, aid in other countries, and that's because aid is a political avenue for the international community to kind of throw money at a problem without finding actual political solutions, which, I mean, again, it's important to have those band-aid solutions to keep people alive while they're you know, in their current circumstances. But it's a completely other thing when you have, and I think this is where the negative feelings towards aid comes from, where you have a majority of people not benefiting from that aid, and you also have the circumstances worsening because the international community isn't involved in finding political solutions for political problems that led to the need for humanitarian aid.
0: Yeah, just to kind of pick it back off of uh, your answer, Miriam, was for me, just I, one of my personal experience from it was when I was at AU and, uh, in 2017 and I wanted to start a fundraiser uh, for the famine that was happening in the greater East Africa, uh, uh, particularly uh, in Somalia, Ethiopia and uh, South Sudan uh, in 2017. And so it's just for me was looking for organizations that were on the ground that, that did great work of combating, uh, malnutrition, malaria, uh, cholera. These are just some of the, you know, the effects of famine, uh, that there's just the aftermath of it. And so searching for organizations was just particularly hard just because it's just like they might look good on papers. Uh, some of these are NGOs, but. Unfortunately, they don't have a crew on the ground, workers on the ground uh, that are locally, you know, centric and focused uh, of doing the work that is necessary on the ground. And so I had a hard time with that. I had to talk to one of my professors who taught development at AU, uh, and she just gave me a couple of names and just like say, search this up, look through, see what you think. And she said it might not be perfect. And for me, it's just like the one organization I came across that I end up picking was Mercy Corps. Uh, now they're based in the US, uh, but they're one of the few, say, few Western organizations that were on the ground uh, that had crew and local people hire on the ground that did the work that is necessary on the ground. And so the problem with some of these NGOs sometimes is just like they have all these great ideas, you know, they're able to get funding, but unfortunately, they don't have the crew, the foot soldiers on the ground to do the necessary work to combat, for a say, a famine that's happening. Uh, so that was my first experience. And so it was just like, I wanted to make sure like the fund, the fundraising that I was doing, that the money would get to the ground and help people that are in need right now in this moment in time. And that was the famine that was happening. And so, and so that, that, that's just kind of, kind of like my own personal experience. And once, once I did the, at the fundraiser was making sure they were very transparent that was just like, okay, has the money reached the ground. This is how much we were able to raise. It's just like kind of show me it's just like what was done with the money. And so I think that was the first time I had an experience like that that was where an NGO was transparent with me through the fundraising that I was doing to get the necessary help that was needed on the ground to help people.
3: I was definitely, you know, I had experiences where relatives would talk to me about development and they would often critique or say that, you know, these organizations didn't have as uh, much of an effect as we would have expected. And I think one example, actually, that I learned while at American was the Millennium Villages project by Jeffrey Sachs. He's an economist, actually. And I remember reading about one story, uh, how there was a, it was basically a a livestock market in the Somali region of Kenya, in Dirtu, Kenya. And the project ultimately failed, um, in short, because the approach wasn't localized. So that's an article that we'll actually post in this episode. But That was an example to me of just how something that's African-led is so important. And that even if you're using development theory or you're using an approach that you've seen proven in different uh, regions of the world, it might not necessarily work in the other context that you're in. That was definitely my understanding. I think that kind of gave me an understanding of why development has to be local, has to be African-centric. And as David said, it really depends on the context that you're in. So what works in Kenya might not work in Nigeria. Um, What works in a community in Nigeria might not work in another. What works in, for example, like northern Nigeria might not be as effective in another part of the country?
2: Yeah, that's a great point, Hinoch. Um, and all of you. Really good point. I think even another thing that just quickly comes to my mind is like or we see this is like the just like the failure of the Millennium Development Goals, you know, with no particular shot to the folks who have created it and the international community, but it's like the consistent revamping and like the consistent, like failure of these goals. And it's like the, the folks who are in power who are like obviously not connected to the communities who the goals are supposed to be um, changing their lives. It's the idea they come back to the table like every couple of years, like why have we not seen progress and let's revamp them and let's rename them. And like, let's, that's, it's kind of like more an effort in like messaging in an effort and just like convening. And I feel like folks convene for the sake of itself. And it feels just like a really cyclical, like really counterintuitive process. And so, yeah, I just it just needs to change.
0: Definitely. uh, Great conversations right there. And it definitely it needs to change. It's just like perspective or these pervasive old views that people have about development and the way we view development. either from the western perspective but also it's just like how do we see the local perspective you know their inputs their need. uh it's something you can't see from a skyscraper somewhere in New York doing a development work you know if you, unless you're you're on the ground listening to the people and seeing what they need right now uh, in term of uh to assist uh in their day-to-day life
2: exactly Yeah. And just to like move forward the conversation, um, even thinking about like what I just said, like with the Millennium Development Goals and responding to what Dow and everyone just mentioned. I think what we're describing uh, is like we have two kind of major camps um, concerning development and how change can be engendered in different communities, particularly African communities around the world. And I think one of those camps, it's like the Bill Gates and the Zuckerbergs who like want to provide, you know, large grants and feed and shelter millions of people and do it at scale and use like terms and devices, you know, known to like business and innovation and, um, you know, believe like social enterprise and capitalists, you know, for the common good need to be like, I think that's like one camp. And then I think There's another camp that's more like around grassroots activism. Um, that like are thinking more about you know rather than like how do we touch as many people as possible on an individual basis like how do we lead systems change efforts you know that change material realities from root causes um, versus um, trying to penetrate like trying to penetrate systems versus like trying to change day-to-day circumstances and I think both of these systems like have really long histories and also are part of a lot of controversial conversations and opinions on which method works? And like kind of what Miriam was saying and what Dow was saying, like these debates, which avenue is the best? How does Africa need to be building its way out of poverty? Is it going to be through business and like enterprise and like global dominance? Or is it going to be through like the will of the people who are going to yet again continue to call truth to power and speak truth to power? I want to hear from each of y'all on the call, on the call, on the podcast. What do you think is the best route? Is it the grassroots movement and the or is it like the mass charity and social impact or do they work together and we need both?
1: This reminds me, David, a lot of what you brought up earlier earlier. Um you're doing your work, right? And you were talking about, you know, people ha- would say like there are certain types of criterias that we hold ourselves to that we don't hold the people that receive development aid to, right? Um, the fact that, you know, maybe or, or like for even let's say for a yeah, you had a school, but did you have chairs? Did you have a desk? No, right? And so there's like a standard that we would never allow our kids to, to be a part of. Um, and if we can, we would do everything to change that. But for some reason, when it comes to aid, people have lower standards for for people receiving aid, right? It's kind of like, well, you're a beneficiary, meaning that you don't really have a say in what you want to benefit from. Uh, and I think that the Bill Gates and Zuckerbergs, even though technology can do wondrous things and it has because they're not experts in international development outside of the realms in which they occupy as Silicon Valley and tech industry uh, workers, or not workers, A tech industry conglomerates, oh, the wording for it. Uh, what what I mean is, is that they also put in a standard when it comes to humanitarian, like what it means to be a human, what it means to have a society, what it means to do social good that they don't necessarily understand from a technological standpoint. Uh, for instance, with Bill Gates, he revolutionized international development by quantifying success, yet you lose a lot of value value when you hold success to a quantitative standard yes uh- a thousand kids might have gotten books, right? Um, but how many of those kids had someone being able to teach them to critically read, right? You can't really quantify an experience. And so it's really hard when you're applying for foundations for aid as an NGO, if a lot of your work is more qualitative than it is quantitative because people are no longer funding qualitative results. They're funding quantitative results, but quantitative results don't necessarily mean that the program was successful. It just means that you're able to produce a certain amount of numbers that are large and thus people find success in that. Um, And and an example for that, I forget which organization it was, but I remember in one of my development courses, we had a huge debate um, with like our our classmates uh, because there was an NGO that basically had a computer um, teach students like their K K through 12 education. Uh, And it was this whole idea that like you can have a tablet and this tablet is your teacher. And if you have a question first as a student, you'll input the question and then it'll get sent to some, you know, like some customer service agent, whatever. And then they'll text it like the answer back. Right. And so this was to supplement the lack of teachers that were available, which sounds great. And you can give a tablet to a lot of kids in schools. But then we're also losing the critical element of there's there's social lessons in a classroom that you can't replicate with a tablet. Right. Like a a tablet can't teach you to critically think a tablet can't, you know, tell you the way you think your questions and where that's coming from. And there's also interactions, like children learn from human interactions with their teachers uh, in the society that they're like living in. Um, And it's just those hidden messages in the classroom that gets lost when you try to rely heavily on technology and not looking for systemic change because a tablet learn based classroom isn't a sustainable classroom. You can't, because it's not the real world in which these students will see when they go to higher education, if given the possibility to do so.
0: Wow, that, that, was, that was great, Miriam. Uh, uh, and I think for me, it's just like one, one thing I just, um, one thing about the Gates and uh, the Gates Millennium Uh, foundation and the work it does in Africa, for example. They're really big on combating, you know, malaria, poverty. It's just kind of like these social uh, entrepreneurship, uh, you would say philanthropists, you know, billionaires. It's just the work they do. Like you said, it is great. It is making an impact. But at the end of the day, I think one thing we have to look at is just for how much impact is it that they are making at the end of the day. They are, here are these you know, philanthropists who are multi-billionaires just in a way that's just the work they're doing it is meaningful but in a way it's just kind of feeding the system you know the cycle continue you know you can lift how many people you want out of poverty right uh you know cure how many people you want vaccinate you know millions of people children of malaria uh but i think one thing just like they it doesn't get to the root of it it's just like the systemic issue that's at the core here and that's just you would say uh, it's just the concentration of wealth, you know, in the hands of billionaires. And now it's just like those billionaires are just that are doing a work that is good, you know, and n- not to take away anything from it. That is good work. But it's just uh, are there underlying, you would say, motives for these billionaires to do the work that they do, you know, whether when it comes to, you know you know, the tax, the tax exemption that they get from the US government, right? Or from the countries that they're in because they're doing charity work in developing countries. What does that mean, uh for for the Gates for the Gates Foundation? And you know, is is the work that they do ever impactful uh to a point where, you know, their continue you know, their 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 revenue and their share of their revenue c- does not take a hit whatsoever when they do the work that they do. I'm not saying like take a hit like to say like they're losing something but is their work so is, is so much impactful because this they truly care or that because they're because it's just like if they just have so much money that they they don't know what to do with it that it's like okay i'm gonna fund this program and so my 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 critique is that is this is this from a place of good or is this just this a place from i'm helping myself because i know this is what the u.s government is going to place on my value because i'm doing this charity work
1: Right. And I'm sure like people do benefit from the work that they're doing. I think it's it's the idea of the fact that humanitarian aid doesn't lead to any lasting political changes because the reason that people are impoverished, the reason that there are contemporary famines are like deliberate policies and actions that are violent against certain groups of people that the government or even like just historical ethnic conflicts have led to their disenfranchisement. And so, yes, you've given people a lot more technology or you were able to vaccinate these people, but does it take away, or does it take them out of the predicaments that they're in? Is there a sustainable change? And it reminds me of when Dow when you said, I mean, not to rat you out as a Gates Scholar, but you are a Gates Scholar. And that's an incredible opportunity to have an incredible thing to show how much you've accomplished. Um, but has it changed your current Predicament um, of what you're facing post graduation, and I think that's that that comes from like okay, you're you know you're still who you are in America, and that will still impact your life regardless of not whether or not someone is throwing money at you to to try to change that.
2: I don't know. For me, I don't have. I just think we have to look at history and so like you know we can take history for example in the U.S. but also history in most nations and most countries and it's just like have we seen in any point in history when we think about advancing societies and like nations being built and stuff like that has big business like ever saved us you know I'm I'm not talking about like folks you know being able to work and like sustain sustain themselves but it's like Have we ever seen those kind of forces, those kind of, you know, hyper-capitalist notions and um, models like really liberate people at the level that we're talking about? Um, No, you know, and I think one of my favorite quotes is by James Baldwin. And I hope I don't butcher it, but he says um, people are trapped in history and history is trapped in them. And I think that speaks to this question because it's like, to an extent we already know what we know. We already know we already know how lives are changed. It's through like social movements. It's through like the collective decisions of the people. It's through um the base building and the movements to, like, actually address systems. And as Miriam said, really deconstruct what have been political decisions and, like, political assaults on people that have actually trans, um, changed their material conditions. And how do we utilize political means to reverse those decisions and create something new?
3: Yeah, you guys really um gave a lot of really great points. And I think a lot of it... Kind of what I'm getting out of this is that a lot of it does point to when it comes to the the giver, the organization or the individual that's providing the aid or that's assisting with development, what is their main intent and like what is their heart in it all? And like, are they genuine and do they actually want to help out and serve and give? And a part of being genuine means to recognize like the systemic issues that you're dealing with. So it's not like you guys said, throwing money at the person, but recognizing like how can this help the, you know the society that I'm working with um, to really outside of my aid be you know fully self-reliant and um, able to to stand on their own feet for the most part. So I want to ask, ask I want to ask you guys what does it g- mean to genuinely help and serve and give and how do we as members of the diaspora help engage in the work of international development efforts to ensure that our work is focused on building the capacity of locals rather than providing a stopgap temporary solution.
2: It's a great question.
1: <laughs> I think something that's really important, and I think that it's not emphasized enough when it comes to even the groundwork for foundations when it comes to funding development projects is how much is the community that you're working with involved in the decision making process of the work that you're doing? Um, yes, you may have partners on the ground, but our partners on the ground, you're Workers Are they just carrying out and executing a plan that was, de- was developed before them um, and without them? Or are they consistently um, a leadership voice in the work that you're doing? And without that component, I feel like we lose so much of what it me like we lose so much of the site needed to do the work that we're doing um, but also we're changing the the fabric of the community if I'm coming into a community that is a mostly communal space uh, meaning people look out for one another and they are they don't have necessarily as much as a heavily emphasis on individualism like we do here. Um, But I'm starting a microfinancing program that encourages individuality and pushes a capitalist narrative onto that community, even if they may not be working within a capitalist framework. Then I'm also imposing my ideas of what it means to be a developed person, a developed community, a developed nation on a people in which they're, what their ideals of development or what their ideals of, of safety may look differently for them. Um, they may want their children to go to school, but school may be a completely different experience than the testing systems that we have in the United States. And I think that because of previous colonial relationships, we haven't really let Africans decide what they want their future to look like. We've kind of just adopted the Western Enlightenment framework that our countries have. And I think that international development work, whether it's in Africa or other continents, um, there should be a futuristic element. Like we should incorporate Afrofuturism into international development. We shouldn't have people develop into what our existing societies are, because we also see that our existing societies in the United States don't work. There's mass poverty in the United States, and you know, no one's talking about it. People in other countries aren't fundraising for us um, to, to fix poverty and our communities here. And I think that we shouldn't emulate our failures in another place. Instead, we should support the Afrofuturism um, and idealism and and use those inspirations for projects versus what we think is our own um, successes.
0: Uh, Just to kind of pick you back off of what you said, you're you're an add-on to what's already on the ground. You're not bringing something and bringing a whole foundation and not building it. No, it doesn't work that way. And so, for me, it's I think it's engaging with locals, like Miriam says, take their knowledge and see what works, and use that. And then you can add on and say, "Hey, this is the perspective I'm bringing, and this is why this wasn't working at a certain way." Now, now you're having a fruitful conversation and discussion of what should be done.
2: Yeah, Uh I don't. I get so sad and just disheartened when I see the level of disempowerment these Western frameworks have done to like destroy what is like this idealism and what is and should be the envisioning of people in their own communities and like even the work that I do with building hope on a very small scale and you know like a a few communities in Uganda even like It's difficult to fully just let folks know I'm here to listen. I'm here to observe. I'm here to understand. I'm here to take cues Um, because a lot of what people have been indoctrinated with is the exact opposite, is that I'm an American. I have resources. I have power and um, I know what to do and even trying to relinquish that and shift that to the to the community itself, there's like confusion because people have been so traumatized. And I think also just like really his like history has been unkind to folks. And um what we have told people is the way has it's just been it's just really um it's just been really negative. Um I just think we should just let communities lead. <laughs> like it sounds simple obviously so that's incredibly nuanced and in every every, every new place it's a new application of what that means. But like, just get behind folks, you know, as Dow said, you know, don't and be mindful that you're not wasting, you know, your resources and not wasting what you have to offer by um, trying to like disrupt what should be the natural order of of things. And as Miriam said, just let people like advocate and advance their own communities on their own behalf.
3: I want to echo. I think a lot of what you guys have shared so far, and just the importance of trust and trusting that local communities know what's best for them, this is just so important. And even as members of the diaspora, I know for me, in particular, when I first started, you know, and I got introduced to the whole field, I remember in the beginning, kind of thinking, I didn't really recognize that the trust should be, you know, incorporated towards the local community. A lot of it was sort of. think my own ego played into it and it was a lot of me thinking okay like how can I like use an idea to create change like it was it was very like me focused and kind of centered on me and I've come to a better understanding now how important it is that we really just place trust on Others and that we're there to support people. Um, people come, you know, with their opinions and their their needs, and then our role is not to our role is not to to act in a way in which we think our ideas, you know, trump that. It's more so we listen and then we provide support as needed. So I definitely want to echo what you guys have all shared, and I think you guys all ma- made really great points. And I personally really enjoyed this conversation. I definitely want to give a very special thanks to Miriam for joining as a guest today. Uh, we had a really great time. Just getting to hear from you and to really share this time with you want to thank all of you guys thank you david dow uh, for your thoughts as well in this episode on international development we want to let our listeners know that our links will be available under our episode description want to make sure that you guys stay tuned for our future episodes and our future
0: posts on social media this is Hanok. and this is dow y'all uh thank y'all for tuning in
2: yes this is david thank you everyone and thank you so much again mariam Have a great one, y'all.
3: Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at The Ubuntu Pod and on Facebook at The Ubuntu Podcast. Make sure to like, follow and subscribe. You can listen to us on both Apple and Spotify as well. You can also follow me directly on Instagram at Henny Yilma.
2: H-E-N-I-Y-I-L-N-A.
0: Hey, y'all. It's Dow. Don't forget to follow me on IG. So it's Dow underscore Dole Dole.
2: Hey, everyone. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at David J-A-Y Curtis with two S's. Thank you.